0: Next year, 2020, will mark the 50th anniversary of one of the more pivotal moments in Irish politics post-Revolution, post-Independence, post-Republic, the Arms Crisis, a political scandal that rocked Fianna Fáil to its very core and accordingly, Irish politics to its very core. There were high profile names like Haughey and Blaney, who were so central uh, to modern Irish political life. They were in the firing line. Accusations were made that government ministers, with the help of an army officer, were attempting to arm fledgling Republicans in the North, and reputations were both made and destroyed in the whole affair. And Donald Fallon has dropped by to tell us all about it. Donald, good afternoon. How are you? It's good to be here. Good to be here. How was your Christmas?
1: It was great. Uh, it was great. Yeah, the, the days all kind of blend into one. And, Don't and someone, someone reminded me yesterday, you're on News Talk tomorrow. And, oh my God, I am. You mm. know, the Christmas. Week just as one mm. one great big glass of Bailey's, but
0: we've made it back. Can I made something? My <laughs> wife did the same thing. She's like, "You're on radio tomorrow." And I went, "No, why well, not?" Well, we tomorrow's both made, Thursday. We both
1: made it in, so our, our respective uh, our we be very we're happy. We're
0: both here and can't be <laughs> disproven. Um, twenty twenty, the anniversary of the arms crisis. In some ways, it's an anniversary that some people will wish never actually rolled yeah, around at Yeah, all.
1: Pe- people like the decade of centenaries because it's a long way away. Things that happened hundred years ago are safely in the past. Mm. Uh, things that happened fifty years ago, uh, not so much. And I this is a kind of uncomfortable uh, anniversary and every year at this time of year in Ireland the focus does turn to the past because we get you know the release of state papers yeah. and generally one figure who looms large now or at this time of year uh, is Charles J. Hahi. Now next year is the 50th anniversary of one of the key moments of the, the Hahi story. I was going to say the Hahi story is made for TV but they have already yes, made that made great it dramatisation. Yes, yeah. It's made for the big screen eventually when they get there and this is just a remarkable story I mean, and something that Hahi emerged from totally unscathed, unscratched even. Mm, and I Somehow. Think, yeah. Somehow, God knows how he did it, uh, they Called Bertie Ahern the Teflon T-shirt, but for me everything bounced off high and I think ultimately you know this may have done him some political good. Mm. So I mean, to put it in context, 1970 is a year in which very little good happens in Ireland. There's a serious escalation in the conflict. In the south, you have incidents like the death of Garda Richard Fallon, first Garda killed in the Troubles. And, you know, the the, the political violence didn't begin or end in Newry. It was kind of sweeping over the whole okay, island. Right. Emotions are running high. And and the manner in which this kind of so-called arms crisis plays out is extraordinary. Like, try and imagine this today. Two powerful ministers in a government cabinet are removed from office, arrested, and brought on trial on very serious charges of conspiring to import guns mm. into the country they mm. live to fight another day one of them becomes the Taoiseach yeah,
0: absolutely remarkable uh, in truth though is all these things they don't just happen overnight and to a certain degree all of this actually began not in 1970 but rather in 1969
1: I think yeah the roots of the arms crisis the previous year the Taoiseach Jack Lynch goes to the public during kind of major sectarian riots uh, in the north and he delivers a television address and maybe it's the most important political broadcast in Ireland since the days of Eamon de Valera mm. certainly anyone who lived through it will never forget it and Jack goes on television and he basically tells the Irish public it is evident that the Stormont government when Stormont had a government yeah. is no longer in control of the situation the present situation is the inevitable outcome of the policies pursued by decades of successive Stormont governments and it's clear also that the Irish government can no longer Stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. So those words, you know, we can no longer stand by. They go into a certain place in Irish political history. Like Hawhei right. later on, we're living way way beyond our yeah. means. No one forgets where they were when they heard those words, we can uh, no longer stand I've by. I've been
0: reading Desio O'Malley's memoir in the last couple of weeks, and what's interesting is that he remarks that although everyone thought we were being G'd up for some sort of invasion or incursion or something active, but that not stand idly by was a brilliantly non committal form of wording, that it didn't actually force you to do anything. Which begs the question then like, what did the government of the day actually do?
1: They pursue a the policy of being seen to do something, which is yeah. a, a great tradition in Irish, yeah. Irish political history. So they set up field hospitals on the border. They have plans to kind of facilitate the flow of what are basically refugees, nationalist refugees, yeah. Yeah. into the south. And he asks the Irish army to look at the possibility of crossing the border and protecting kind of nationalist enclaves in the north. Was that ever really going to be done, to be honest? It's highly unlikely. Mm. And imagine what that would have triggered on a global scene. Imagine in the United Nations, mm. if Ireland had invaded the border you know, of another nation's state. I mean, there would have been an enormous political crisis in which no one could be neutral. But for nationalists in the north, I think they felt a massive betrayal because as, they, as far as they were concerned they read what Jack said as yeah. we're and they coming, said for right, you. He's coming for you and yeah. the song that was being sung in the north was Jack Lynch came out from Dublin and he had t- he had 10,000 men he marched them up to the border and he marched them home again
0: <laughs> the grand old Duke of Cork there we go <laughs> um, but of course emotions were running very high not only in nationalist communities north of the border but also very much in the south
1: as yeah, well. yeah I mean you may not be interested in the north but the north was interested in you You know, that was kind yeah, of the yeah. way it was going and you had people coming down you had people speaking from the, the side of Lurries and O'Connells Street in Dublin, literally. I'm going into the suburbs. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of my family of this happening in, in Ballyfermot, where people would just arrive on a truck and say, you know, I'm from Derry or I'm from West Belfast. This is what's happening to us. Give us whatever you have. Farmers being encouraged to hand over shotguns, you know, anything that people had, they're being asked to put it into the hands of what were known as nationalist defence corps uh, in the north. And sometimes, you know, a rank and file member of, of Fianna Fáil would stand up on a truck and say, we have to do something, you know, to help these people. And we're only one generation removed here from Fianna Fáil. Party that was once described as a, one of its own members yeah. as a slightly constitutional party. Mm-hmm. So, you know, rank and file members of Fianna Fáil often in the late 60s, early 70s are among those saying, We have to do something. We can't watch this happen.
0: Uh, and it is in that shadow of Fianna Fáil only having been recently slightly constitutional is what brings us then to the two protagonists. So, explain to us for people who aren't familiar with the ins and outs of it all what is the involvement of Charles Hockey and also of Neil Blaney in so, all of
1: this? Two different characters. I mean, there's a parliamentary subcommittee set up by Fianna Fáil to deal with the crisis. They've hundred pounds at their disposal to supply quote humanitarian aid to nationalists so you've got this elusive pot which is controlled basically by these two figures Blaney uh, and Hahi now younger listeners might not know the name Blaney anyone over, over a certain age will always remember him he was deeply popular uh, Donegal East TD and a career that any TD in the Dáil today would be very envious of I mean elected in 1948 father of the Dáil from 1987 yeah. Until his death in 1995. Mm. That is just extraordinary. His father was a prominent kind of War of Independence uh, and Civil War veteran. And up in, in Donegal, they called his supporters the Donegal Mafia. Now, I'm not implying that there's any kind of corruption, just this brilliant level of political organization. Yes, I mean, they yeah. ran the constituency like a well oiled machine. Even the Healy Rays would be envious of the way the Blaneys could, <laughs> could run the something. show. Which says something. And I mean, and Blaney was a nationalist and a Republican. And when he runs for the leader of Fianna Fáil in the 60s, he describes himself as a radical Republican mm. candidate mm. Haughey is different he's actually the son of a free state army officer during the civil war and he, he keeps that quiet but his blood would have been more Fine Gael than Fianna Fáil. Mm. born in Castlebar, raised in Dublin do- Donny Carney. he can tell you he comes from anywhere in the island of Ireland because mm. he's links to Donegal he plays everyone you know and he marries into the kind of influent- influential Lamas family but he's yeah. a brilliant political operator I mean these are two men who can knock on doors for Ireland and they do
0: Yeah, funnily enough when you talk about how uh, Charlie Haughey in a different world could have been a Fine Gael man he was a contemporary in Fien- in uh, UCD of Garrett Fitzgerald, amazing. and he tried to get Garrett Fitzgerald to join the Kevin Barry Cum and the Fianna Fall branch out there, which is amazing. And also, what I'm struck by when you look at the dates of, of Neil Blaney, 1948 to 1995, in modern parlance, that is enough for nearly two and a half full. Doll pensions. You get your full doll pension after twenty years service, oh, and he had forty-seven. That's a remarkable,
1: remarkable uh, career. W- what
0: actually happens in the course of the arms trial or how this humanitarian pot is diverted to arms, is is still even to this day slightly unclear. It, it is.
1: I mean, various books have gone through it in detail. I think the best one, the, "The Lost Revolution," by by the historian Brian Hanley and the journalist Scott Miller, talks about this and there's a pretty good account of it. And it kind of notes that there were there were contacts between Republicans and representatives of the Irish government. But crucially, it was never really clear what level of either was in contact with this is very murky mm, mm. stuff that's going on. But what is who is important to the story is this very elusive figure, Captain Kelly, Captain James Kelly, Irish army officer from Cavan, strong Republican background. And what's claimed uh, is that, you know, Kelly with the clearance of Blaney and Hahi had gone to the continent made arrangements with a German arms dealer for the purchase of some 180,000 rounds of ammunition and pistols which would be flown from Vienna uh, to Dublin. So that seems to be an established fact that Captain Kelly is sent to the continent mm. to get weapons.
0: So having established that then obviously alarm bells go ringing in the special branch because they realise that something is not quite right here but they bring it to government buildings and the, the, oh, the response is sort of the, lukewarm.
1: In the special branch there's a guy called Peter Berry who's a veteran. He's been, he was there in the 1930s I mean, he was there gathering intelligence on the blue shirts in the IRA in the 1930s and he's still there now during the arms crisis. And Blaney brings it to the door of the tea, or, or, uh, Peter Berry brings it to the door uh, of, of, of the Taoiseach and he says, look, this is, what's, this is what's going on. But it's only later on when there's a tip-off to Cosgrave, the leader of the opposition, Liam Cosgrave, uh, and he puts it to Lynch as the leader of the opposition that if you don't do something about this, we're going to blow this blow this thing up.
0: So effectively then the government was kind of sitting on it until the opposition got wind, wind of until it. Until the then.
1: opposition got wind of it, exactly. Exactly. and if you don't move on High and Blaney this thing is going to blow up right. so within Fianna Fáil there's enormous uh, backlash when, when, when these two men are removed Kevin Boland the minister resigns in sympathy with the two and then he throws a political grenade into the mix Boland on the way out says by the way most of us in Fianna Fáil were aware there were plans <laughs> to import such arms yeah. and most of us supported them
0: um, So then we have an arms crisis which becomes an arms trial but the funny thing about the arms trial is that it kind of never really gets going at all.
1: It, it builds to so much and just collapses. I mean, it's, it's a pantomime. Hahi actually admits in court, he says, yeah, we were seeking customs clearance for a shipment, but he didn't know it consisted of weapons. So what else was it meant to contain? Yeah, what God else I, was uh, this German uh, arms dealer you know. sending over? Yeah, a load of bandages. Yeah. And the charges against Blaney were, were dropped early on. They never left the district court. So, I mean, the, there will be winners and losers, but what the media wanted, the great trial that they that they wanted, they they never really got. There were no successful prosecutions.
0: You talk of winners and losers. Uh, in hindsight, it's very difficult not to see Captain Kelly who came forward who was the whistleblower for all of this as being something of a loser.
1: Yeah and Kelly, Kelly's family have fought this case for a long long time. Kelly wrote a brilliant memoir a great title for the memoir as well Orders for the Captain not Orders from the Captain for the Captain ah, okay. giving his account of the events of 1970 and he said in court look I acted under government orders I did what I was told he was the one whose career was basically Basically over, and he—I mean—he later successfully sought to clear his name against several allegations of who he was working for. He won a very high-profile libel case as well. But I, I think Kelly was the political collateral damage, yeah. if you will, uh, off the tail.
0: And what about the others? What were the long-term impact for them? Johnny
1: Blaney went his own way. He founded Independent Fianna Fail, and believe it or not, Independent Fianna Fail was only technically reunited with Fianna Fail in 2006, mm. which is extraordinary. Mad. I mean, you basically had Donegal Fianna Fail and you know, yeah. the rest of Ireland. It became Fianna, very confusing, Fianna Fianna actually,
0: when when the aforementioned funny you mentioned. The Healy Rays. When Jackie Healy Ray was running in '97, he branded himself as Independent yes. Fianna Fail, and it had to be made clear that he wasn't the same Independent <laughs> Fianna Fail as the it was, it were. Was it was continuity was Independent, like a lowercase i Fianna Fail.
1: But uh, look, Haigh, Charles Haigh, one of the most remarkable political operators in Irish history. He built an enormous grassroots popularity within the party on the back of this, and I think the whiff of gunpowder, real or imagined, you know, it, it did very little damage to him. And I mean, less than a decade on from this imagine like you're brought for criminal prosecution for trying to import guns into the country mm. and less than a decade on from this Hahi uh, is elected to Taoiseach so I mean the relationship between Hahi and, and, and Margaret Thatcher I, I noticed on the journal.ie this morning they're talking about the new state yes. papers yeah, yeah. and that's a lot of it's about this relationship between Hahi and Thatcher uh, but I mean undoubtedly Hahi, Thatcher's view of Hahi must have been shaped a British perception of what had occurred in the earlier yeah. arms crisis. It's
0: remarkable how how zeitgeisty it might be as well because nobody knew in 1970 just how profound or how long running the troubles would be. And then when the vacancy came up in Fiend Fall eight or nine years later, the fact that he had this kind of whiff of mm. gunpowder to him undoubtedly made him a more attractive proposition. Um, Donald, we're going to have to leave it there. Donald Fallon, as ever, thank you very much for talking us through that. Donald Fallon is a historian and author. He is the creator of the Khmer to me blog and the author of volumes one and two of the Khmer to me books. He's also the host of the Three Castles. Burning Podcast, which you'll find anywhere you get your listening material.